open us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for so many things um, that you that you provide your people. Even this week, we think about the, the rain and the moisture. We're so grateful that you have provided that for us. Um, we pray for, um, or we're thankful for um, all the provision that you do provide your people. Um, and most importantly, we're thankful for salvation that you have provided us through through your son. We pray as we focus on um, the risen Lord this morning in our worship service, that you would set our minds and hearts even now to be focused on um, worshiping you, praising you, bringing you glory. Pray that in all that we do this morning as a congregation, that it would be pleasing to you, that it would build up your people, that you would feed, that you would feed us, that we would grow in, in spir- spiritual nourishment as we sit under your word preach, and even this morning um, in, our, in our time here in Sunday school. I pray as we open up Colossians 1 and, and again think about the, the prayers of Paul, that we would have our our prayer lives shaped by the scriptures, that we would more and more um, utter petitions to you and praises to you and prayers of thanksgiving to you that are, are modeled and shaped after your word. Pray that you would do that work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so today we are going to continue in... Like this is a warning. This is different light, and it is a little disorienting. So when you get up here to preach, it's like you weren't, you're gonna you're gonna want to look this way. But okay, it's okay. <laughs> it's really nice though. Everyone like the wall, or lack of wall? That's very nice. Yes. Okay. So today we're gonna continue through the book praying with Paul, and the goal today is to get through chapter six of the book. And this chapter is an analysis of Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, so you can be turning in your Bible there. Um, We're going to be spending a lot of time there in the Bible. But just a reminder, if you haven't been here, if you've forgotten why we're doing this study or what this study is about or the goal of the study, Carson gives us a reminder at the beginning of this chapter he states that there's, there's two main influences on his prayer life as a Christian. First is his theology. Really, this is pretty simple. The idea here is that the more we learn about God and our, improve our grasp on theology, the more it will affect our Christian life. And uh, that includes our prayer lives. And then the second influence, which, is, which he talks about, is what this, this really the entire book is about, or the book is a model of, and that's shaping our prayers by the Scriptures, particularly by, by focusing on the prayers contained in Scripture. And so this is why it would be very valuable to learn to pray with Paul, because a study about praying how Paul prays will help shape how we should pray or, or what we should pray for, or how we should ask for things, how we should even approach God, what, what grounds should we come to our petitions to God. So this book is seeking to, to do just that, to, to, to help give us the language, the thoughts, the beliefs that are necessary to have more biblically faithful prayers, and that is what this chapter is going to do again. And so there's a lot of really good content, I think, in this chapter, so we're just going to jump in. And Carson begins the, a study of these verses by doing what he's done throughout the book, which is to just study the, the first, to study the context and the setting that Paul was writing the letter in. And the first big point that he he wants us to take away as we study Colossians is that Paul is praying for Christians here that he's never personally met. 
Paul is praying for Christians that he has not personally met, he does not personally know them. I think we can see hints of of this in the language in verses 4 and 9, when Paul says, since we heard of your faith, see that in verse 4, and and from the day we heard, in verse 9, right? they've, they've, they've heard reports of the Colossian church, but gives hints that, that Paul does not know them personally. He's just heard reports of the faith, of their faith, which makes the prayer unique to the ones that we've studied thus far in, in the study and the ones that we've already covered in the Thessalonian chapters. And that's because in those prayers, Paul was the one that planted the church in Thessalonica. So Paul was praying for Christians that he had met, that he had known personally, that he had a pretty deep personal relationship with because they were Christians at a church that he founded. But here, Paul's writing a church that he has not visited, and it was founded by a, name, a man named Epaphras. Carson points out that Epaphras was himself a Colossian who was probably led to the Lord through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So in the sense that the church that Epaphras planted, this is the one to whom Paul is writing in Colossians, right? that, that church is Paul's spiritual grandchildren in the faith. And so what, what we see from Paul here in this relationship, I think it's key for us to think about, that Paul had never visited them, but he still assures the Colossians that he's praying for them. So he, he hasn't visited them, but he assures them that he's praying for them. Carson writes, apparently Paul ha- has added the Colossian believers to his prayer list, ensuring that he never stops praying for them, And as each new report comes in of God's work in that place, it becomes grist for Paul's constant intercession to God for them. So a big principle, number one, to take away from the setting of the letter, or the context of the letter, is that Paul prays for Christians that he doesn't personally know and he hasn't met. And so I think the lines of application then are pretty clear for us today. Carson writes to ask ourselves just how extensive our prayer lists are, which I think this is, has been a really good check for me, and I think what, what I have been trying to emphasize over the past few weeks, which we've been emphasizing throughout this study, and that's prayer for other Christians, particularly prayer for the Christians in your local church, the local church that you are a, a member of. And so this is a good check to to say that our prayer lives can be and should be more extensive than just that. But Carson does make the point that we do have a primary responsibility, and I think this is really key, we have a primary responsibility to be loving and therefore to be praying those in our immediate sphere of influence or, or the, the closer spheres of influence. These are the people that God has brought in our lives that we, we know the best, that we are in closest relationship to, the people that we, we have the most influence over. That's one way you could think about it. So these are family members, church members, friends, colleagues. We do need to be praying for people in those types of close relationships. And I would say that that's who we need to be, that's who we're primarily primarily responsible to be praying for. Yet I do think those should not be the furthest reach of our prayers. It's good to be praying for the universal church and believers everywhere. And so even Christians, we may not have ever met or we don't know personally, just as Paul is doing here. Now I think the obvious implication of saying something like that is that we can't pray, it's just literally impossible, we can't pray for all believers everywhere. We don't have the capacity, we don't have the time. So this is just more of a principle, a principle to be um, living towards. A good principle and goal is to, to have is to be praying for God's work through Christians everywhere. We can do that here, I think, we can do that through the, the missionaries we support and the work they're doing in, in different parts of uh, the world and different churches across the world. You can pray for other faithful churches 
in this city, even though you might not know anybody in those churches or very few people. You can pray for other faithful churches in this state. You can pray for other faithful churches in the, the nation, across the world. There isn't a lack of, of need to be praying for. Now, you may be wondering, maybe it's just me, but, but how, does, how does Paul do this? How, do, how is he praying for all these people at the same time as he's kind of teaching them, he's planting churches, he's evangelizing? There's a thought out there that Paul didn't really have a nine-to-five, although that's kind of misleading because he did support himself at various places through work. But the point is, you may be wondering, well, Paul can pray for all these things because it's kind of his job as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to make sure all the Christians are right. So he had a kind of a, a special responsibility to be praying for all Christians everywhere. And, you know, we're, we're not apostles, so we shouldn't be held to that same standard. There may be some truth to that, but I, I think it's ultimately an unhelpful thought and it, and it sheds light to a second thing that, that Carson points out from the context or the setting of the letter, which is something we spent some time, or that we covered last week, so we won't spend a ton of time here. But the second thing to, to note is that Paul prays unceasingly. Paul prays unceasingly. And so, this is really simple. But the reason Paul can pray for all of these Christians and all of these churches even ones he hasn't met personally or he doesn't know personally, the reason how he can do all that is because he prayed a lot. Right? It's really groundbreaking, but he spent a lot of time in prayer. And we talked a lot about, or last time about what praying unceasingly does and doesn't mean, so I'm not going to rehash that. But Carson does point out something, I think, important in, in this section, which he hasn't said before. And he's, he's arguing, or he's making the point, that, that Paul prays unceasingly for Christians because there are some things in that which we, we can't stop praying for, or that we should not stop praying for as Christians. Paul implies there are some things we must pray for again and again, over and over and over, as Christians. And I think this makes a lot of sense if if we think about it. Carson writes that it wouldn't make sense to pray for God to sanctify us and then not return to that prayer for, for six months. Right? That, that, that makes little sense. Or, or to utter a prayer to grow in holiness, but maybe just do it once a quarter, so four times a year. Right? That, that's just not how the Christian life operates. We need some, some of God's blessings, some of God's work in our lives constantly. And thus we need to Ask for them constantly, to be persistent in our petitions. Carson argues that this is the sort of thing that Paul has in mind when he tells the Colossians and, and other believers in the New Testament that he's not stopped praying for them, that, that he's praying for them continually, that he's praying for them night and day, this type of language. There are, right, there are certain things Christian needs again and again, and this is what Paul is interceding on behalf of his heavenly Father for them. So Paul's unceasing prayer, does it does serve as an example for us to have more persistent, or you could say consistent prayer lives, talking about amount of time. I think that Paul's prayer life does serve as a model for us in that way. But maybe more importantly, it serves as a model of what we should be praying for constantly or what we should be praying for unceasingly, which is most primarily, as we've seen through the study, we're going to see again today and we're going to see the, through the rest of the book, most primarily what he's praying for is the spiritual maturity of believers, this, the spiritual growth of Christians. Which leads to the third and, and final thing we can take away from the context, the, the setting of the prayer which is something we've seen in all of his prayers so far. So maybe one thing you can write down is that Paul's really consistent in all of these prayers. And that is Paul links prayers of thanksgiving. So his thanksgiving to God, he links prayers of thanksgiving to his prayers of petition, which is what he's, he's asking God on behalf of others. 
So verses 3 through 7 of uh, chapter 1, Paul writes of his thanksgiving for the faith of the Colossians and their spiritual growth. And as, as we've seen throughout the study, the things that Paul is are thankful for, the things that Paul is thankful for are what he thanks, or let me see if I can get this right. What he's thankful for is what he asks God for. Or as Carson puts it, this might be more helpful to me. The kinds of things for which Paul thanks God are the kinds of things for which Paul asks. I don't know why that's such a tongue twister for me. The kinds of things for which Paul thanks God are the kinds of things for which Paul asks. And so this is ground that, that Carson has, has already covered quite a bit in, in the previous chapters. But one unique aspect of Paul's prayer that he draws out is that for Paul, his common practice is to, to, is to pray for ongoing concerns or even just the, the, the natural growth and blessings of the Christian life. That is what he most normally prays for and not on praying for people or situations when they fall into times of desperation or in desperate need. So this is the model that I think we see from Paul throughout his letters. He's thankful for the signs of grace in believers' lives, so he gives thanks for that, and then he prays for more of that same signs of grace to be growing in the Christians' lives. So again, the pattern that we see over and over again. And Carson's point here in this section is to ask us to examine our, our own hearts, our own lives, if our instincts are the same as Paul's. Is that our same tendency? That we're, our, our common practice is to be thanking God for the, the typical normal signs of grace in a believer's life, or do we typically go to God only when there's some desperate need or some turmoil or trial? Carson writes, Do we feel most constrained to pray when our church is about to split? or when there have been several conversions? Are we eager to intercede for our children when they seem to be making great progress in the faith, as when they are succumbing to the influences of ill-chosen friends? Do we petition to God for evidence of perseverance and generous love among Christians we know when we witness some of those virtues in them already? All right, you notice Carson's point that he's trying to, to hammer down here. His point is, just to say that if we're to follow the model of Paul, though we shouldn't neglect to pray when crisis or turmoil or, or some sort of desperate thing needs to be prayed for, we, we should be praying when those things occur. We should pray for that. But we must also be praying, and I would say this should be our normal pattern of prayer, as it is for Paul, is we must be praying for just the normal signs of grace in believers' lives, in our own lives how God is growing us, how he's maturing us, how he's growing each other. And then to ask God to continue that work in us. So that, that's probably, if you've been here, you might say, well, this is like the fourth time you've said this, Ryan. And it is, because it's the fourth time Paul said it. Um, but I'll pause here for any questions or comments. All right, let's move on to the content of the, of the prayer. And what we see here is kind of an answer to, to the question of what is Paul praying unceasingly or, or constantly for these Colossian Christians? What's he praying for them over and over again? And what we see in verses 9 through 14 is, is just one petition from Paul. So he has one request followed by a statement of that petition's purpose, and then finally a description of the way God answers to the petition, how that works out actually practically in the Christian life. So those are going to be kind of the three main points. That's how Carson structures the chapter, is to go through those three main points. And I'm just going to read the verses first, starting in verse 9, going to 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the actual petition, um, we read this clearly, the actual petition in verse 9. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what he's praying. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. To be filled with the knowledge of his will. So the, the million dollar question is, what exactly is God's will? What is this knowledge of God's will that he's asking for them to be filled with? I'm sure you're aware there's been a lot of ink spilt on this topic of the will of God. What is the will of God? Um, It's a very important question. Most popular understanding, I think, of the will of God refers to to God's will for some area in our personal lives. Or maybe like figuring out some aspect of my future or, or our future as a people. Carson writes how this often works out as we seek the Lord's will over whom we should marry, over major purchases, other big life decisions. So it's, again, kind of this future casting. I need to make the right decision, so I need to figure out what the Lord's will is for my life. That's kind of how most people, I think, think of the will of God. Which is a, a, a good thing for us to do, and none of that, I think, is intrinsically bad. The, the Lord does lead us in ways, and we should want to follow His lead in these big life decisions. We want to make wise decisions. But Carson's argument is that if, if that is what we immediately think of when we think about God's will, then our thinking is entirely off. It's really off from what we see in Scripture. And potentially, our thinking could be in dangerous territory of being anti-biblical. Because it tends to make us think of God's will primarily in terms of my future, my vocation, my needs. What's the emphasis there? Mine, mine, yeah, there's a self-centered nature where it's actually not God's will that we're focused on, but it turns into a self-centered understanding of things, which is not good. And probably worse than this is this is not how the Bible speaks of God's will or the will of God. The Bible is much more concerned about our conduct and character than it is with what we choose to do for a living or where we live. All those, those, those things are, are very important. So what we see then when we study the will of God in the scriptures is the will of God is oftentimes synonymous with obeying what God has mandated or what God has commanded in his word. So Carson writes, what God has commanded humans to do or Christians to do in his word, we have a responsibility to do that. So it's very bizarre for us to ask or think of finding God's will, that, is, that, that we need to find or discover God's will as, as if it's some thing out there in the universe that we can just attach to or that we can just discover, right? That, that's very bizarre. Because God's will, biblically speaking, is something Christians already know. It's His word. So that's why the biblical way of speaking is something closer to the idea of, or you see this in the Psalms a lot, of, Teach me your will. Teach me to to do your will. So it's not this like discovery process, but notice that there's the idea of teach me your, your ways, teach me your will, teach me how you have ordered this world. We see this in the Psalms again. Carson points out a few passages in the New Testament. Romans 12, 2, I think is pretty clear here. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, or that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what is the will of God? Comma, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul's assuming that the transformation of character and conduct, which happens by the renewal of the Christian mind, is what what equips a Christian to know God's will. 
meaning have our mind, having our minds renewed and our, our character transformed, is to discover personally His will and how His way is best. Or a, what is good and acceptable and perfect, as Paul would write. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 may be the most clear on this. Paul writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So again, do you want to know the will of God? Obey his commands. Abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. Right, so notice again how, how the will of God is not this thing that we, we kind of discover. It is revealed in His Word. It is His commands. It is His, His righteous character that we see through His law. That's His will. That, that is what He commands for His people. But there's a second part to, to verse 9 in Colossians. Paul also says, Be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Meaning, the knowledge of God's will consists of wisdom and understanding given by the Spirit. Given by the Spirit. And this makes sense with the understanding of the will of God as just laid out, because wisdom in the Scriptures is often tied with how to live rightly or consistently with God's Word. How to live virtuously. Also, this makes sense. Paul would be praying for this for the, the Colossians, knowing the, the particular struggles the Colossians were facing in their context, they were being tempted to leave the faith by, by false teaching and pressures from the surrounding pagan cultures or pagan culture to, to submit to worldly philosophies. Right? There's, there's big pressure for the Colossian Christians to kind of adapt or to, to take these pagan worldviews and... Um, mesh them with the Christian worldview. I think that context should sound very familiar to us today. So it makes sense that Paul would pray that they grow in the knowledge of God's will that consists of wisdom and understanding. They, they needed to think Christianly. That's about the simplest way I think we can put it. They needed to think Christianly and bring their minds and hearts into conformity with God's will, with God's word, his, his commands. And I think that's, this is pretty obvious, but I think that's all of God's people's needs in every generation. Carson argues that Christians are people that sometimes are generally prone to either chase every fad or adopt every gimmick on one end. On the other end, there, there's some that, that don't change anything ever about maybe church or, or worship he says they, they like what is old simply because it is old. They like tradition simply because it's tradition. Carson argues what the church needs is men and women whose knowledge of God is growing and whose delight is, in, is, is found in thinking God's thoughts after him. Essentially what Car Carson is after here is that we need to be Bible people. We need to be Bible people because it's only knowing the Scriptures Knowing how God has revealed Himself or who God has revealed Himself to be in the Scriptures is the only way we'll be ensured we'll be filled with the knowledge of His will. This is, this is the how of knowing or growing in the knowledge of God's will, is to know the Scriptures more. And it follows then that we, should, we need to be praying for this constantly because all of us need growth in this type of knowledge. We all need growth in the knowledge of God's will. Questions, comments about that? The second thing we see in these verses is the purpose of Paul's prayer. The purpose of Paul's prayer, which is that believers might be pleasing to the Lord Jesus. So we see this in verse 10. We have not ceased to pray, this is verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. 
So the reason Paul, the reason primarily for Paul praying for Christians growing in wisdom and the knowledge of his will is not for their own good or benefit, although it is for their good and for their benefit, but primarily he prays for them so that it may please the Lord Jesus. So you could say that it, that it would be glorifying to Jesus. So they obey and bring glory to their master, which is the aim, right, of every Christian. This is the aim of our lives, to please and serve our Lord. And one thing that Carson points out in this section that I found very helpful is that Paul is writing in the context of an honor-shame culture. So this purpose statement would, would be extremely relevant to them. I think it's still extremely relevant for us if we understand the, the context. But an honor-shame culture, there's a lot of what that means and, and what it doesn't mean. But, but what Carson emphasizes is that in the first century, most, most cultures operated in this, this shame-honor way, meaning people are taught, and really not even taught, but it's just a part of the, the culture of the day, but the culture's values were that an individual must be worthy of the family's name or, or an, any institution, worthy of their country, worthy of their heritage. Right? There's this, this, this idea of a worth and bringing honor. It's the idea that Carson's trying to, to get across that's so prevalent in Paul's context. And if someone fails to live a life that gives honor or that is worthy of the family name or the country's name or the heritage name or any institution's name, then what happens is there's deep shame that is brought upon that person, but not just that person, but his entire extended network, namely his, his family. So Paul is saying Christians are to live li a life that brings honor and worth or is worthy of the Lord Jesus. Right? And, and to not do that would to be bring great shame upon yourself and to the Lord. So again, this plea is very powerful in the context Paul's writing. And this pleasing of the Lord is, is pretty exhausting. Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Carson interprets fully pleasing meaning we, we're, we are to be pleasing to him in every way. It's kind of a comprehensive um, statement. We have to be pleasing to him in thought, word, and deed, and action. All of our lives must be pleasing to the Lord. Which I think you can probably see then why we need to be praying this constantly and why Paul's praying constantly for the Colossians. Because ordering our lives so that all aspects of our lives are pleasing to the Lord is very difficult work. It, it's hard. As Carson says, living a life that honors the Lord in all areas will change how we work. It will change what we do with our times of leisure. It's just going to change how we speak to our spouses, how we speak to our, our children, how we speak to our parents. It's going to shape what we read, what we choose to watch on TV, how we treat our neighbors. Pleasing Jesus fully is a comprehensive commitment. That's a big key takeaway from the text. And as it relates to prayer, it really can only be done. Living a life ordered in this way can really only be done when God moves and works in our lives by, by filling us up with the knowledge of his word, with the knowledge of his will, with the knowledge of his ways which was Paul's prayer. So this, I'm trying to make it argue, Paul is making complete sense here of his prayer and the reason for his prayer. And now that, that we, we know that the knowledge of his will, which again is the knowledge of his commands and word, we know then that's not an end of it in itself. That knowledge, the knowledge of God's will has a goal. And the goal is Christian maturity such that our deepest desire and our actual lives are pleasing to the Lord Jesus. So the goal, the goal of the prayer 
is for us to grow in a knowledge of God's will, so a knowledge of God's word, the, the knowledge of how God has revealed himself to us, so that we could order our lives and submit to that word. We could submit to that word and be obedient to what it commands so that we can live lives pleasing to the Lord. I'll pause here. Any questions, comments? We're going to need some questions. We're like almost done. Carson's going to lay out four practical from the text, but those are the two of the first two. But yes. Roxanne. Yeah. Well, and just the need that this is why we're kind of, we're in a desperate place, which leads to prayer, or this is what we need to be praying for, not, not just ourselves, but, but other Christians. We need God to work. That's why we pray, most fundamentally. We need God to work. All right, we're going to get to this, this last section here um, that Blake kind of led us into. The, Paul gets really practical, so he doesn't leave us hanging. It's like, okay, you, you need to live a life pleasing to the Lord. Go do it. Right? He, he gives some, some um, very practical ways that Christians are characteristics that describe Christians that lead to a life pleasing to the Lord. And we see this in verses 10 through 14. So the first characteristic we see is that Christians bear fruit in every good work. So one way we're pleasing to the Lord is when we bear fruit in good works in our lives. We see this in a place like Ephesians 2.10. We are saved in order for us to do good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. So it's, it's, it's closely related to, to why we are saved in the first place. We are saved to bear fruit for good works. Of course, it's always good, I think, to point out that, that the kinds of good works and the, maybe even the amount of good works, the amount of fruit is different for, for every Christian. There's, there's kind of a spectrum here. Some, some Christians, given the season maturity level, will produce more fruit than another. But the general, so what I'm saying there is we shouldn't have this comparison game. We should guard against this comparison game of like, well, he has 10 barrels of fruit and I have eight barrels of fruit. Then something must be wrong with me. Could be, but it probably is just the season of life where you are maturity-wise. Um, maybe no one else thinks about having barrels of fruit. No. Well, the point is, the general pattern of the Christian life is that good works, fruit, obedience to God's law or God's commands is present in the believer's life. There is some fruit. There is some good works. So to think of Paul's prayer in relation to good works, we could say that Paul prays that believers might be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they might live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus which how that looks, which what that means is, one way that looks is abounding in good works. Abounding in fruit. Bearing fruit in good works is one way that we please Jesus. The second characteristic we see is, is also in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. So this may seem, this was kind of confusing for me. Um, and Carson was, was helpful. But it, it kind of seems very repetitive for Paul because he's praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they can walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And one of the ways to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord is actually by increasing in the knowledge of God. So it's like, I'm praying for you to increase in the knowledge of God. Anyways, I'm getting confused. Carson mentioned how, how this seems very circular. But he argues we need to view increasing in the knowledge of God as obedience, so it's not just mere intellectual knowledge of God's will, but increasing in the knowledge of God implies an obedience or conformity to the will of God. So we must grow in our knowledge of God's will or God's ways in order for us to obey it. I think this makes sense. We can't obey something if we don't actually know it. So another way to think of this is that knowledge of God and obedience are closely related. As we grow in our obedience to what we know of God and His will, then we get to know God better, which in turn leads to more obedience to what we just learned about God's will. 
which in turn leads to more knowledge of God. So Carson says this, this isn't a, a vicious cycle, but one that is exceedingly wonderful. This is one of the beauties of the Christian life, because we can't, this is exactly what Aletha was saying, we don't actually exhaust our knowledge of God. There's always going to be room for us to grow, grow in our understanding of His way, and therefore we're going to be growing a lifelong process of growth and obedience to what we're learning and what, what, what we're being convicted of as we read God's Word and we grow in this knowledge. And it's, and it's wonderful because our flourishing, our joy, our contentment, they're all found, really our purpose, it's, it's found in our obedience to the will of God. Which means we need to grow in our knowledge of that will, which, is, which allows us to obey in more areas, more areas of our lives, but just more areas in the, the word of God. And this is the Christian life. So, yeah, we, we don't ever graduate from this type of growth until, until we go to heaven or, or Jesus comes back. We don't exhaust our knowledge and therefore our obedience to him. The third characteristic, Paul says that, that leads to a life that is pleasing to the Lord, is that Christians are strengthened to display endurance and patience. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So, there's, I think there's, there's quite a bit to notice with this verse. The, the first thing is that the power that is present, or the, the power that should be present in the believer's life, is demonstrated in ways we might not necessarily think of when we think of God's power. So this power that gives believers strength is not the power to display miracles or do something miraculous or even in, in like the power of our own resurrection from the dead, which is what Paul is typically talking about when he uses this term power, the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead. But instead, he says the power gives the Christian endurance and patience. Carson points out how both endurance and patience being tied to strength is kind of maybe just extremely counterintuitive for us. It's very countercultural in our day. Ours is an age that, that values kind of quick solutions, where quick success is valued, easy triumphs are promised. The idea of endurance and patience might actually be viewed as, as negatives in, in some circles, might be unappealing to American Christians. But Carson's point, and I, th I think he's right, is every Christian, every true Christian, knows that true patience, true endurance, which is the kind of perseverance needed to, to, to finish the faith, a, a true Christian knows those things are far beyond our, our limited human capacities. So to be truly patient so especially think of like patience in the face of persecution or, or to have, to endure, to truly endure in the face of persecution and outright hostility for your faith. We need power. We need the power of God in our lives to do those things. Carson writes well here. He says, not to be confused with mere stoicism, still less with mere physical stamina, these virtues or patience and endurance, enable the believer to survive with joy when persecuted, to triumph in self-composure and contentment when insulted, to trust God's all-wise and all-gracious providence when one is suffering like Job. When Jesus sees these virtues of patience, endurance, and endurance in us, he is well-pleased. I think it's a really, really good way to put it. The, the last characteristic Paul talks about that, that leads to a life pleasing of the Lord is that Christians joyfully give thanks to the Father. So you see this in verses 12 through, through 14. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I think put really simple, what, what Paul is stating is that to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ is to live a life that, with, with joyful thanksgiving in light of the salvation we have received in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's kind of the, the gospel message of salvation. And I think this, this, this follows our understanding of salvation as Christians. If God has brought us out of the domain of darkness, which is the world, the domain of Satan, and he's, he's transferred us, he's given us a new uh, name, we have a new citizenship. He's transferred us into His kingdom, the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. What is the proper response to that? Gratitude. That's exactly right. Gratitude. We are, we are perpetually, perpetually thankful, joy-filled people. And the reason this will produce joy for Christians is that our salvation from the judgment our sin deserves is our greatest need in this life. And so Christians know this. We know this. there is no bigger problem in our life than our sin, than the judgment that our sin um, deserves. We know this is our greatest problem. And God has met that greatest problem. He has solved that greatest problem so that he has transferred us from this domain of, of Satan and darkness to his kingdom. He has made us citizens of his kingdom. And so because it meets our greatest need, then a natural human response is joy, gratitude. I mean, I think we can see that. I wish I had an illustration. Someone might have an illustration. When you get something that you know you really need, what happens? You jump up and down, maybe. A shout, singing in the shower. You're, you're, you're exuding joy because your need has been met. So how much more that our ultimate need is met? Carson writes, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. I think this is exactly right and very well put of, of the type of joy that is characteristic of the Christian life. And this type of joy, Paul is saying, that is characteristic of the Christian life, is pleasing to, to Jesus. It pleases our Lord. It gives Him honor as we are grateful and full of thankfulness for the salvation that we have not earned, but that we've been given. So, in conclusion, what we see in this text is, is pretty straightforward, I think, hopefully. And I think it's a really... I hope this is encouraging. This is a really simple and good model that we could implement tomorrow, tonight, this week, as you're praying, of, of just models or a, a structure of prayer. We saw that Paul prays constantly that these Colossian Christians, remember, whom, whom he's never met, would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So we could commit to pray for that, right? <laughs> so to be filled that we and the Christians that we know and the Christians that we don't know, churches in this city, that they would be faithful and that the members of these churches would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, of God's word. And then Paul tells them the purpose of this prayer, the reason for this prayer, is that he wants, to live, wants them to live a life that's worthy of the Lord, a life that is utterly pleasing to him. And then he very, very helpfully articulates for us four characteristics of Christians four characteristics or four, four habits of life that are pleasing to the Lord. And that's, I don't, the, the four characteristics, it's not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a typical list. This is a typical list of what um, the Christian life looks like. So we see a life that is pleasing to the Lord is one in which Christians bear, bear fruit and good works, continue their growth in the knowledge of God, 
strengthened by God's power to endure and to exercise patience. And finally, the, the Christian life, or the Christian, a Christian that is pleasing to the Lord, joyfully gives thanks to the Father for salvation. So that's all we have for, for Colossians 1, 9-14. Any final questions, comments? Roxanne. No, that is really helpful. That, again, this idea of we need God working. We need to be um, praying or asking God to be filling us with this knowledge, to be providing us strength. So that one's really clear. We cannot provide our own strength. The power of God is the, the source of that strength. Um, so, yeah, that's really an important reminder. Yeah, I'm thinking of if you have a heart posture of I'm submitting to this word, I want this word to be the rule of my life, then those can be very good questions of, okay, I really want to obey, I really want to, to follow God's way, but how does, how does God's word apply to this situation? I think those are really healthy things, especially in the context of uh, a local church or, or in community with each other, getting wisdom from other Christian. I don't know if I would be put it in the same category of finding the will of God or, or, or something like that. Or just kind of that's wisdom of the Christian life of seeking counsel from God's word, but also from brothers and sisters in the faith. Yeah. Which then you have some that person would have a, a bigger issue. All right, next time. Oh, next time we're actually taking a break from the study, going back to um, God's Word is enough, and Ken White is going to lead us through the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. He's shaking his head. That's good news. Okay, so be looking forward to that, and you guys are dismissed.